All right, well, we're there in Genesis chapter number 12. You remember last week we started this brand new series on the life of the patriarchs, the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Excuse me, I'm really thirsty. <laughs> and um, we, last week we went through the last part of Genesis chapter number 11 and the first part of Genesis uh, 12. Today we're going to just pick up where we left off last week and we're going to start off in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 9. And the Bible says, And Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. And I want you to understand something. Last week we saw Abraham respond to the call of God. God called Abraham out. Remember, he called him to be separated. And then we saw the Abrahamic covenant. And then we saw Abraham call upon the Lord. And we looked at that initial calling on Abram's life. Today, uh, we're going to continue to look at this transition. Because here's what I want you to understand. And it's really interesting how this works in Scripture. And I, I just want to give you three points tonight from this passage. And we don't have to spend uh, more time than, than usual. But I want you to notice in this passage the suffering of Abram or the suffering of Abraham. Because in verse number 9, the Bible says, Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. Now, we saw last week that Abraham had this, basically he had a, a victory, a spiritual victory. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He stumbled a little bit, spent some time in Haran, and then he finally left, and he went to Canaan, and he's walking with God, and he's saved now, and he's, you know, uh, uh, experiencing that Christian life, walking with the Lord. And the next thing that happens in verse number 10 is this, and there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And I want you to understand something. Today there are churches and preachers and pastors who teach a prosperity gospel. Who's ever heard of the term before, prosperity gospel? Who's heard that before? You know, who's heard this term before, health and wealth gospel? Who's heard name it and claim it? All right, right? These are all things, and if, you, if you've not heard of any of these, you know, if you, want, if you just have some time you want to waste and get no eternal rewards for in heaven, just, you know, type in Pentecostal preaching or something on YouTube or watch TBN or something, and you get all these preachers. You know, here's basically what you're looking for. You're looking for the preacher that has more jewelry on than your wife, all right? You know, the guy that's just dressed, if he's got a feather in his hat, if he's got a hat, better. If he's got a feather in his hat, better. You know, if his shoes are red, that's the guy you're looking for. And today you got these preachers who are basically saying, just you come to Jesus, you come to God, you come to Christ. Christ is going to make you rich. Christ is going to make you healthy. You know, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. You're, you know, give us $1,000 and you're going to get 10000 in return. And they preach this prosperity gospel. And basically here's what they're saying. They're saying nothing bad's ever going to happen to you if you're living for God. And if you're living for God, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be good. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. But listen to me. The Bible does not teach that. And in fact, when Abraham made a big sacrifice and said, I'm going to leave home. I'm going to leave country. I'm going to leave my father's house. I'm going to leave my kindred. I'm going to physically move my family and, and follow the will of God and walk in the will of God. The very next thing that happened was a financial famine, was a problem. And here's what you need to understand. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Amen. You say, well, I, I'm doing something great for God, and I lost my job. What is God doing? And I would say to you, hey, welcome to, you're, you're like an Abraham. 
You're like, you say, well, I, 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 I'm growing and I'm getting connected in church and I'm being more faithful. I started soul winning and now all these bad things are happening. Hey, part of the Christian life is that sometimes, sometimes you do something great for God and then the very next verse, the very next thing, you find yourself in a famine. And, you, and, and this would be, and then you can question, you know, did I make the right decision? Does God really know what he's doing? Why did God call me out here? Didn't God know that there was a famine? But I want you to understand, and we see here today, and you and I can, 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 can uh, you know, see in our own lives that sometimes the Christian life is a life of famine. Sometimes we suffer in the Christian life. Keep your finger there in Genesis. Go with me to the book of 2 Timothy just real quickly. Let me give you some cross-references to look at in regards to that. Keep your place in Genesis and go to 2 Timothy. If you can find the T-books in the Bible, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, uh, they're all clustered together, all the T-books. Find 2nd Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, notice verse number 12. Notice what the Bible says. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. The Bible says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, notice these words, shall suffer persecution. See, God never promised you health and wealth. God never promised you. you know, and, and today you got these Christians saying, God's going to heal you. You know, say that to Paul. Why did Paul have a thorn in the flesh? Why did Paul have a... A sickness, you know, and today we're told nothing bad's ever going to happen. But listen to me, as soon as Abraham took a step of faith, as soon as he began to do something great for God, the very next thing that hit him was a famine. He's having financial problems. You're there in 2 Timothy, go to 1 Peter. Go past Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, into the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12. You're there in 2 Timothy, you're going to go past Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse number 12. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Notice what the Bible says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Look, when you, you say, well, I'm going to take a step of faith, and then the very next thing that happens is a famine. I got a famine. Hey, that's not a strange thing that happened unto you. He said, think it not, think, think it not strange. Concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Notice verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering. See, Christ suffered on this earth. And guess what? You and I are going to suffer if we follow Christ as well. He says, he says, ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. I'm here to tell you, the prosperity, health and wealth, name it and claim it, every, that, that is a lie. That is not true. God never promised you, you know, that everything would be comfortable and everything would be great. God promised that he would not leave thee nor forsake thee, but sometimes God goes with us through a trial. And sometimes we go through a famine. And sometimes we go, so look, when you go through a famine, you say, I just had this great, you know, spiritual victory. And then a famine hits you, just realize that's the Christian life. Go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter number three. Let me give you an example that I see at Verity Baptist Church all the time. Matthew chapter three and verse number 16. And this is maybe a real specific example, but I just want to share it with you because I think it's funny. Well, I'm, you know, I don't think it's funny, but... I think it's interesting. Let me put it that way. Matthew chapter 3, look at verse 16. Matthew should be fairly easy to find. It's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3 
and verse number 16. Notice what the Bible says. And Jesus, when he was baptized, remember Jesus got baptized as an example for us. He says, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heaven were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Matthew chapter 3 ends with this verse of Jesus being baptized. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 4 and look at verse 1, I want you to notice what happens immediately after Jesus was baptized. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, I want you to understand, when the Bible was written, it wasn't written in chapter and verse format. That was added later, and I'm glad it was added. It was added later for us to be able to find things in Scripture more easily. But when the Bible was written, it's not like Matthew was writing and he said, there, you know, chapter 3, that's where it's going to end. Chapter 4, here's where it begins. No, when it was written, this was just one document. And here's what I want you to understand. Immediately after Jesus was baptized, the very next verse of the very next chapter says, then was Jesus led up with the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. I remember when we, and this happens today, even now. But I remember when we first started the church five years ago, we were getting a lot of people saved and, and a lot of people were getting baptized. And I remember we had five people we baptized in a row and all five people after they got baptized, we never saw them again. And I literally got to the point where I was just kind of afraid to baptize anybody. Because I was just like, man, you know, they come to church. They come faithfully. I mean, some of these people came faithfully for months. They were coming Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And as soon as I dipped them in that water, it was like, it was just like something happened. Like you never saw them again. And then I remember one day I was reading this and I just thought, that's what happened. They got baptized. They got this great spiritual awakening. They got this great spiritual uh, uh, victory. And then the next verse in their life was that they were led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and they didn't make it. Abraham had this great victory in his life, and the very next thing that happens was there was a famine. Usually after a spiritual victory, there is a battle, there is a trying, there is a fight. And even, even today, the reason I found Brother Salvador's uh, 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 baptism certificate, because I was going over a stack of baptism certificates, I got back there and I was thinking to myself, man, it's just so funny how true the Word of God is. I've got like eight baptism certificates back there of people that were coming faithfully to this church, and we baptized them and they never, and they never came back. And obviously when our church was one year old and we're meeting in our living room, it hurt us more than it hurts us now, you know, but, but even today, you know, I mean, it's to the point now where if there's people in our church I don't like, I'm just like, hey, can we baptize you? You know, uh, you need to get baptized. No, no, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm just like, man, as soon as I baptize these people, they're going to be gone, you know, uh, the, the devil's going to tempt them. But listen to me, here's, here's what I'm trying to tell you. The Christian life is a life of suffering. If I approach you about baptism, I'm, it's not because I don't like you, I promise. We see the suffering of Abraham. And here's what I want you to understand. In the Christian life, there's suffering. In the Christian life, there's battles. In the Christian life, sometimes you, do, you say, I had, I had a great victory, and then there was a famine. I had a great victory, and now I'm out here in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. And it's the way the Christian life goes. So we see, number one, the suffering of Abraham. Number two, I'd like you to notice, if you make your way back to Genesis chapter 12, like you to notice the selfishness of Abraham. The selfishness of Abraham. We begin to see Abraham act in a very selfish way. Notice what the Bible says, Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 10. And there was a famine in the land. 
And Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Look at verse number 11. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai his wife. Now I want you to notice what the Bible says. Look at verse 11 again. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt. He decided, I better go to Egypt because of this famine. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But even as he started getting close to Egypt, and here's what you need to understand. In the Bible, Egypt is a picture of the world. Egypt always pictures the world. God's people were in bondage in Egypt. God sent a deliverer to bring them out of Egypt. You always go down into Egypt. It's always a bad, it's the house of bondage. It's a furnace of iron. It's always a bad picture. Now notice what happens. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, now here's what I want you to do. The closer he gets to Egypt, the crazier he starts talking. The closer he gets to Egypt, he's not thinking straight. Notice what he says to Sarah. Verse 11, And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, he's asking her to lie now. He says, Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. He's starting to act and talk crazy the closer he gets to Egypt, the closer he gets to the world. He starts getting all paranoid. He starts saying, you know what? I think they're probably going to do this. You know what, Sarah? Let's pretend we're not married. In fact, why don't you tell people that we're related? Tell them that you're my sister. Don't tell them we're married. That way they won't kill me. I don't want to have to die for you. And you know what I've noticed in the Christian world? The closer Christians live to the world, the crazier they think. I mean, you've got Christians today who are just like, well, what's wrong with the transgender movement? And it's like, are you crazy? You're, you're either not saved or you're extremely backslidden a lot. I mean, you're either not saved. I mean, could, could there be a lot out there who's just, lit, you know, sitting on the, on the walls of Sodom and just take, thinking it's all normal? Yeah, there, there, there could be. But you know what the problem with the lots in this world is that they're real close to Egypt. They're really close to worldliness. And here's what I've noticed. And here's what I struggle with as a pastor is that I have to almost teach people in their Christian lives how to think. Because they don't even know how to think right. And you know, I'll give you a very specific example. Tonight's sermon is all about specific examples. When it comes to women's clothing, I, this is one of the most frustrating things I do as a pastor is teach and preach on women's clothing. And here's why. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.9, you have to turn there, but it says, And like a manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or costly array, but because, but which, uh, good night. I was, I was quoting that. Good night. You see how that happens to me all the time? First Timothy 2.9. Let's look at it. But which becometh women professing godliness with good works. There you go. Let's not turn there now. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. I've noticed that, like, I can get up and just preach about women dressing modest, women dressing modest, women dressing modest. And then here's the thing. Today, women don't even know what that means. I mean, today, women don't even know what it means to dress modest. And then I'll teach the men. I'll say, look, husband, look, father, your job is to make sure your wife dresses properly. And your job is to make sure your daughters dress properly. And today, guys are just like, I don't even know where to start. 
I don't even know where, where, I don't even know what modest is. And here's the problem. Our society lives so close to the world. We're so close to Egypt. There's so much of an influence on Egypt in our lives that we don't even think straight. I mean, like Abraham, the closer you get to Egypt, he's just like, we're not married. Don't tell him we're married. Just lie. You know, don't, you know, who cares what God thinks? Just lie because I want to save my skin. And today, even today, Christians, the closer we live to the world, we're like, what's modest? What's right? What's proper? And I'll be honest with you. Can I, can I, this is therapy for me tonight. Can I share, can I share concerns I have? I'm concerned with our church. Here we are, Verity Baptist Church, who's supposed to be more independent, more fundamental, more heart preaching, more extreme than the average independent fundamental Baptist Church. I mean, good night. We're hosting the Red Hot Preaching Conference. And yet, it seems like our women don't even know what modesty is. I was talking to my wife. I said, I, said, I was just out of frustration. I was saying, where, where am I failing as a pastor to teach these ladies how to dress properly? And, you know, my wife reminded me of something that I would have totally forgot about uh, if it wasn't that she, she reminded me. Because she, she, I said to my wife, I said, you know, what, what am I doing wrong? And I, told, and I mentioned our pastor when my wife got saved at 17 years old. I said, what was it that pastor so-and-so was teaching and preaching that I'm failing to preach? Like, what got you right? And here's what my wife said to me. She reminded me of this. I forgot. A long time ago, when my wife was a young Christian, before we were married, and this, this pastor's wife, who was an older lady, took her aside, and because my wife was a brand new Christian, a young Christian, and she had a desire to dress right. You know, she, she wanted to know what are guidelines for dressing right because she wasn't raised in a Christian home. And this pastor's wife took her aside and basically gave her uh, nine guidelines for dressing properly. That, and this was, the, the pastor's wife said, this is how I decide how to dress, and this is how my daughter's dressed. And my wife basically adopted those guidelines for herself. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to share those with our church people because I don't even think some of you don't even know what modest apparel is or what modest apparel looks like. And I, I want to share those with you tonight. And I, you know what? I'm going to share these with you tonight, and I'm probably going to share them with you again in like two weeks, and I'm probably going to share them with you again in like two weeks because here's the point. Ladies, I don't really care how you dress. To be honest with you, I could care less. I don't even notice how you dress. But as a pastor, the Bible says that I have to give an account for what was preached at this church. And if you want to dress like a harlot, you want to dress like a whore, that's between you and God and you and your husband and whatever. But I want to be able to stand before God and say, you know what? I taught them how to dress right. I taught them what the Bible says and that they ought to be dressed modest, that they ought to be shamefacedness, that they ought to be sobriety. But I don't even think most Christians today don't even know what that is because they're comparing it to Egypt and they're saying, well, of course I'm dressed modestly. I mean, look at how the world dresses. But listen to me. The world is not the standard. When we start getting close to Egypt, we start thinking crazy. We start acting crazy. And you ladies, you know, do whatever you want with it. But I want you ladies to listen up. And you ladies in those mother baby rooms, I can't see you right now, but you get off those phones right now, and I want you to pay attention. And, and let me say this. You husbands and you fathers, you pay attention. And you ought to write these things down so you can instruct your wife and instruct your daughters how to dress properly. And let me take it a step further. If you're a lady who works on staff at our church, or your husband works on staff, or your husband holds a leadership position, and here's what I mean by that. He's in discipleship. He's a personal worker. Some of you ladies are personal workers. We've got these ushers. You're a head usher, something like that. Listen to what I'm going to say, because this is how I expect leaders and the wives of leaders in our church to dress. These are guidelines given to my wife over 10 years ago, and I think they're good guidelines. This is what modesty means. Here's what she was told by this pastor's wife, this older pastor's wife, to a young 
believers. She said, number one, your shirt should not go lower than three inches below your collarbone. She said, listen, she was talking to my wife who's a young Christian. She said, you know what? Christian ladies should not wear low-cut shirts. And she told her, here's a good rule of thumb. Find your collarbone and put three inches up to your collarbone. If your shirt goes below those three inches, it's too low. And she just taught her that. She just said, that's a good rule of thumb for you to know. Here's what she taught her. She taught her, your shirt in the back should not go lower than your shirt goes in the front. If your, if your shirt goes to here, ladies, it not not go to here in the back. The goal is to cover your skin. The goal is modesty. It's not to reveal as much skin as possible. It's to keep you modest. There's some parts of your body that only your husband should see. And your bare back is one of them. You know, and she taught her, this Christian pastor's wife took my wife aside when she was just a 17-year-old girl. She said, you know what? Your shirt shouldn't go lower in the back than it goes in the front. She told her, don't wear spaghetti straps. And if you wear a tank top, it should have a thick strap. Now, I'll be honest with you. My wife today, her personal preference is she doesn't wear uh, tank tops at all. She wears at least a cap sleeve. But she told her, you know what? Don't, don't wear spaghetti straps. And here's the other thing that's funny. You get up here and you preach against spaghetti straps and people get mad. I remember being a teenager in a public high school and we were told, the, late, the girls were told, no spaghetti straps. And today it's accepted in independent fundamental Baptist. But she told her, you know what? No spaghetti straps. And if you're going to wear a tank top, make sure it's got uh, thick straps. She said, uh, wear an, under, uh, an undershirt and a slip underneath all your clothing to, so that you don't show the lining of your undergarments. Hey, that's a good rule. You ought to wear clothes in a way and cover yourself up in a way where you're not just showing your undergarments. She said this, your clothes should not be form-fitting. A skirt, now listen, if I'm getting too uh, detailed, I apologize, but it's your fault because you don't get it when I say modest. (laughs) Your skirt should not hug your bottom. Your skirt should drop at the back. Your clothes should not be form-fitting. We should not be able to see the curves of your body. That's not the point of clothing. That's not modest. There are some things that only your husband should see. She said this, a skirt should not... Uh, should cover your thigh. Now let me explain something, because today in the independent fundamental Baptist world, here's what people say. Your skirt should go to your knees. Your skirt should go to your knees. Your skirt should go to your knees. Show me in the Bible where it says your skirt should go to your knees. But I can show you in the Bible where the Bible says that your thigh is your nakedness and that you ought to cover your thigh. Now ladies, look, what that means is your skirt or your dress ought to be long enough to cover your thigh in the front and in the back and when you're sitting. Tell you got ladies who are like, well, it's covering my thighs. And it's like all the way up here in the back. Or, you know, it's covering my thighs. And then as soon as you sit down, it's like, whoo. And it's like short shorts now. Hey, put enough, you know, you say, okay, I don't, can you not afford an entire skirt? I don't understand. It's like the half off sale was they gave you half a skirt. Buy something long enough to cover your thighs. Number, number seven, she said a slit should not expose your thigh. You say, well, my skirt's long enough. Yeah, but your slit comes all the way up here. We can see your legs still. We can see the nakedness of your thigh. Now, listen to me. Here's the problem with slits. If they're coming, if they're starting too high, then it's because the skirt is too short. And you say, well, my skirt's the right length, but the slit still comes high. Then here's why it comes high, because the skirt is too tight. The only reason you need a slit that high is because you're trying to get into something that's skin tight. 
Put on something loose and modest and don't, you know, give us a little peep show every time you walk where we can see your thigh. Well, my skirt goes down. Yeah, but you got a slit coming all the way up to the, to the side of your leg. Number eight, she told her nose pencil skirts. Look, your skirts, ladies, ought to have a flair to them. They ought to be loose. Some of these skirts are made in a way to where they're tighter on the bottom than they are on top. And here's the point. They're made to make you walk a certain way so you sway your hips. And that's immodest. And that's wrong. You got to be able to walk. You say, well, you're getting to the description. Well, saying modest obviously doesn't work around here. Just saying dress modest and don't dress like God would have you. Obviously, that's not descriptive enough. So let's get real descriptive. No pencil skirts. Not all high heels are modest, ladies. Do you understand that? My wife said, don't say hooker heels, but there, I said it. <laughs> Not all high heels are modest. Some high heels are meant to bring attention to your legs. Have enough sense to know what that is. And if you don't know, men, step in as a leader and say, honey, I don't think you should wear those to church. Come on. You're not going to a club. And by the way, let me say this. Use common sense. Obviously, there are some things that a little 10-year-old girl can wear that maybe a young lady shouldn't wear. Obviously, there are some things that an older lady could wear, and it wouldn't look wrong on her, but it would look wrong on a younger lady. But, you know, these are, these are things that my wife was taught because she had a desire to dress properly, and she adopted these for herself. And if you watch the way my, my wife dresses, all of those rules apply to her dress. And, you know, some of you ladies, you ought to apply those rules to your dress. And some of you men ought to enforce that whether your wife likes it or not and step up and be the leader. Some of you men ought to enforce that and step up and say, you know what, my daughters, they're not going to dress like that. They're going to dress properly. They're going to dress. You say, well, why do you, you know, and here's the funny thing. The fact that I even have to go through all those details in an independent, fundamental, extreme Baptist, hard preaching church, the fact you even have to go into those details show that we live so close to Egypt, we, don't even, we can't even think straight. We, we just think it's fine to dress, you know, things that 50 years ago Every Baptist, every Christian would have said, no lady ought to dress like that. Today it's accepted in our independent fundamental Baptist movement. We see the selfishness of Abraham. I just wanted to show you there, the closer he gets to Egypt, the reason, some of you are like, I can't believe pastors say that. Here's why. Because you watch so much TV, you listen to so much of the world's media, you're living so close to the world, you can't even think or, or, or see straight. And you need somebody to stand up and say, no, 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 spaghetti, spaghetti straps, that's not modest. Exposing your entire chest to the world, that's not modest. Exposing your back to the world, exposing your backside to the world with a slit that comes all the way up, that's not modest. Because you say, well, you know, what, what's modest? I'm explaining it to you right now. Write it down. Put it on your refrigerator. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Let's get off of that because none of you were liking that. Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 10. Let's get on something else you're not going to like. Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 10. And there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. We see the selfishness of Abraham. And I want you to notice that Abraham made a decision here based on money. A famine, God called him to, the, to Canaan land. And a famine comes to Canaan land. And Abraham says, let's go down to Egypt. Wait a minute, Abraham, God didn't call you to Egypt. God called you to Canaan land. And even if there's a famine there, 
Even if there's a, 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 a financial downturn there, even if there's a problem there, you stay where God called you. But here, Abraham said, no, 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 no. I, I better go down to Egypt because I heard that there's jobs in Egypt. I heard the economy's better in Egypt. And listen to me, mark my words. Every time you make a decision based on money, you'll make the wrong decision. Every time you make a decision solely based on finances, you will always make the wrong decision. Look at Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 10 there. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Go to the book of Ruth real quickly. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth chapter number 1. You find this in the book of Ruth as well. Ruth chapter number 1. Look at verse number 1. Ruth chapter number 1 and verse number 1. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says this, And it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Same thing as Abraham. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He went to Moab away from God's people because of money, because of a job. He and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Go down to verse number 19. Notice what the Bible says. The entire family dies. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them and they said, is this Naomi? She's now coming back. After she lost everything, she's coming back. Notice what she said in, in verse uh, 20, Ruth 1, 20. And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara. The word Mara means bitter. For the Almighty have dealt very bitterly with me. Now notice what she says. This is what will happen when you chase money. This is what will happen when you make your life, and, and you see it. I mean, I see it in people when they switch to where now I'm motivated with money. I'm motivated with, 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 with the things of this world. I used to be interested in the things of God, but now, you know, this famine kind of messed me up, and I'm only interested in the, in the things of God. This is what happens to people who chase money. Verse 21, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Because you know what? There's some things to Naomi that were more important than money like relationships, like her family. But she lost it all when they were chasing money. She lost it all because they were, and here's what I want you to understand. Abraham goes down into Egypt, gets himself into trouble because every time you make a decision based on money, you will make the wrong decision. That's what the Bible says. Go to the book of Matthew. Let's look at it, let's look at it somewhere else. Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6. Look at verse 30. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30. Everybody likes hard preaching as long as it's against the sodomites. Everybody likes hard preaching as long as it's something we're not doing. Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 30. Matthew 6, 30. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Abraham, don't you know that God knows you need to feed your wife? 
Don't you know that God knows you're going to have to feed your children? God knows. Look, I'm talking to you. God knows you need to feed your children. God knows you need to pay your bill. God knows you need to do those things. But you don't have to go down to Egypt and trust in your own knowledge and wisdom. You can trust in God. Look at verse 33. But seek ye first. You see that word first? Not second, not third, not if I can squeeze it in, but seek ye first. First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. The mor- for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil there. And I'm here to tell you, if you decide to leave Verity Baptist Church, you're going to move somewhere else because you need to go get a job over there or they have a good job. Look, I don't think you have to come to our church, but you better make sure you go somewhere where there's a good church. If you take a job and it's going to take you out of church and you say, well, I need the money. I'm just telling you right now, you're making the wrong decision and you will regret it. Whenever you make a decision based on money, you make the wrong decision, you're making a selfish decision, and you will regret it. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Notice another selfish thing that Abraham does. Look at verse 12. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 12. We see, see, the closer you get, you say, this is Abraham, the great man of faith. But the closer you get to the world, the more selfish, self-centered, and stupid you start acting. Start making wrong decisions. You start doing wrong things. You can't even figure out what's modest and what's not modest. Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee. This is Abraham talking to his wife. That they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister. He says, don't tell them you're my wife. Don't tell them you're my wife. Now notice, that it may be well with me for thy sake. And my soul shall live because of thee. Did you catch what Abraham just said? Here's what he said to Sarah. He looked Sarah in the eye and he said, Honey, I love you. And you know, you are so pretty. They're going to want to marry you. And I don't want to have to defend you or die for you. So would you lie and say we're not even married? I mean, that's basically what he said. You say, well, that's kind of selfish. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know what I've found in marriages? Wives are usually the most unhappy when they feel that their husbands are more loyal to something other than them. When a wife says, I just feel like my husband loves his career more than he loves me. Or he loves this, or he loves that, or he's got his friends, or he's got whatever. You know, and here Abraham was acting very selfish when he said, I, I, I love you, I, I, I'm for you, but I don't want to die for you. And then, and then the word of God would tell us, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself and sacrificed himself and died for it. But Abraham's acting crazy. Notice verse 14. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. This is interesting about Sarah. You know, this, is, this goes against the culture of America today. Today we're told in America, young is beautiful. And you got these women who just can't, you know, they can't come to the realization that they're old. <laughs> and they're just like, I'm going to do everything I can to just try to look young. But here you got Sarah who is, if you look at the Bible, she's 65 years old. She's a 65-year-old woman, and everyone's just going on and on about how beautiful she is, how fair she is. Look at verse 15. The princess also Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and he entreated Abraham well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Look at verse 17. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with a great plague because, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Basically, God just steps in 
and says, I got, isn't it good when God just kind of steps in on your behalf? God just keeps you from doing something really stupid. You, you decided, I'm going to go down there and tell that guy, I'm going to go punch him in the face, and the car won't start. Hey, that's God. That's God stepping in on your behalf. And no one's ever done it, just me? Okay. Look at verse. We see the suffering of Abram, and we see the selfishness of Abraham. I'd like you to notice one more thing in this chapter. We'll finish up. I'd like you to see the sowing of Abraham. The sowing of Abraham. Look at verse 18. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why dost thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why, dost thou, why, why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold, thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. You know, it's sad when the world has more character than Christians. It's sad when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is rebuking Abraham and saying, why did you lie? Why didn't you just tell the truth? Take your wife and get out of here. But I want you to notice what happens. Look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. And Abram, I want you to notice this phrase, went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had. Now, listen to this. All that he had, (coughs) excuse me, and Lot with him into the south. The Bible makes sure to tell us when he came out of Egypt, God wants to make sure we know it wasn't just Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. It was Abraham, Sarah, and all that he had, and and Lot were in Egypt. So what what does this have to do? Why why did you say that we can learn the sowing of Abraham? Just real quickly, keep your finger there in Genesis. Go to Galatians chapter number 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Excuse me, I'm sorry about that. Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 7. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. We're almost done. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The Bible teaches this concept in the Bible of sowing and reaping. We sow something, we plant a seed in the ground, and if you plant that seed, you can count on the fact that you're going to reap something. He says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now let me explain a few things about this principle of sowing and reaping, and we're going to see it in the life of Abraham. When you sow, you will reap. When you sow, you will reap. When you sow, you will reap eventually. You don't reap immediately. You don't plant a seed in the ground and then come the next day and it's, it's sprung up. It takes time for that thing to grow. But eventually, if you sow, you will reap. And not only can we know this, when you sow, you will reap. When you sow, you will reap eventually, not immediately. And here's the third thing I want you to know about this. When you sow, you will reap and you will sow more than you, you will reap more than you sow. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 8. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. See, if you, if, you, if you sow into fleshly, carnal, worldly things, you will reap fleshly, carnal, worldly things. If you sow to spiritual things, you will reap spiritual things. Notice verse 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing. He says, look, if this is the principle, then let's do well. Let's do good things. Notice what he says. For in due season... He says, eventually, at some point, we shall reap if we faint not. 
Because here's what Jesus is saying. When you sow, you always reap. And when you sow, you don't reap immediately, but you do reap eventually. And when you sow, you always reap more than you sow. I don't have the, we don't have to go there, but in Hosea, it talks about sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind. You always reap more. So what does this have to do with, with, with Abraham? Go back to Genesis chapter 13. Let me explain something to you. Abraham spent some time in Egypt. He made a stupid decision. He made a decision based on money. And he took his family down to Egypt. And he exposed them to the things of this world. And he sowed fleshly things. And he leaves Egypt at the end of the chapter. He leaves Egypt in the first verse of the next chapter. And Abraham may walk out of Egypt and say, Whew, that was close. Man, that could have been bad. Man, I, you know, I'm glad to be out of there. I'm glad we got out of there with no problems. I'm glad everything is still okay. But listen to me. When you sow in Egypt, you will reap eventually. Just because you go and do worldly things, just because you go and spend time in the world, you say, well, nothing ever came of it. Nothing ever happened. Yeah, maybe not in chapter 12, but wait till you get to chapter 13, Abraham. Wait till you get to chapter 16, Abraham. You say, well, what happened in chapter 13? Well, let's look at it. Genesis 13, look at verse 9. Abraham and Lot get to the place where Lot is growing up and he's got too much cattle. And they need to separate. Genesis 13, look at verse 9. Abraham says to Lot, is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This is when Lot chose to go down to Sodom, ruined his life in Sodom. Notice what it says. He looked and he said, wow, he beheld the plain and he said, that's a well watered plain. That's a nice plain. And notice what he says. Look at verse 10 again. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even, don't miss this, as the garden of the Lord, notice this, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. You know why, you know why Lot chose to go to Sodom? Because he looked over at Sodom and he said, you know what Sodom reminds me of? It reminds me of Egypt. He said, Sodom is like the land of Egypt. I think I want to go over there. Here's a question I have for Lot. Lot, how do you know what Egypt looks like? Lot, how do you know what Egypt's like? Oh, right, Abraham took you down there. Abraham exposed you to it. Abraham, listen to me. Abraham was raising Lot. Abraham exposed Lot to the world. And when Lot was old enough to make his own decisions, he decided, you know what, Abraham, you go ahead and stick here with the God's land and Canaan land and all that mess. I'm going to go down over there because that reminds me of Egypt. And some of you are exposing your kids to the world. And you give your teenagers these smartphones with no, with no accountability, with no, nothing to stop them, so they can just surf whatever. And listen to me, I'm not trying to offend you, but if you give your kid a smartphone, you are a dumb parent. And, you know, just, here, here you go, kid. Here, put a TV in your room and just watch whatever you want. Here, just have access to the World Wide Web. Just have access to whatever you want to listen to on the radio. Just have access to whatever on TV. Let me put you in the public school and let just people have access to you without me knowing what they're exposing you to, without me knowing what they're giving you, without me knowing. Let me just expose you to the world. And you say, well, they graduated, nothing happened. 
in chapter 12. And then you say, why is my kid living like the world? Maybe because you exposed him to the world, Abraham. Why is Lot living out in Sodom? Maybe because you took him down to Egypt. You will reap what you sow. It will come back to bite you. It will come back to get and you. Say, well, well, you know, my kids, you know, we just let them. We, it's just that pastor. He's too crazy. And he's too strict with all his rules. And we just let them do this. We just want them to have fun. But you're exposing them to the things of the world. And then you're going to come running to me saying, why, why are my kids living like Sodom? You reap what you sow, Abraham. Lot saw the weird water plagues of Jordan. He said, hey, that's like the land of Egypt. Remember, remember, Abraham, remember we spent that time in Egypt? Abraham, remember when you got backslidden and we quit going to church and we were, at, we were over there with the world? Remember that? That's what Sodom remember. I think I'm going to go over there, Abraham. Notice that wasn't the only reaping that Abraham had. Go to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, look at verse 1. Remember when Sarah has a lapse in faith? And she kind of gives up on the promise of God, that God was going to give her a child. In Genesis 16 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had in handmaid, notice this, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Remember that whole mess with Hagar? Remember that whole mess with Ishmael? Remember that whole mess that came as a result of Sarai giving Hagar to Abraham? But notice what the Bible tells us. She was an Egyptian. I wonder where they picked up Hagar. I wonder where Hagar came from. Now, look, I can prove to you that they picked up Hagar in Egypt. But there's a really high likelihood that when Abraham spent some time in Egypt, he bought himself a slave girl named Hagar, and he began to sow something that he was going to reap later. And this destroyed his marriage and destroyed his relationship. And Ishmael was a burden on him. You will reap what you sow. And you say, well, I can spend time in the world. I can spend time in Egypt. I can watch that on TV. I can look at that on the Internet. I can go there. Nobody knows. I can, I can, I can do those things. Nobody knows. And it doesn't seem to be affecting me now. But it will. It will affect your children. It will affect your wife. It will affect your husband. It will affect you. Well, nothing happened. We left, we left Egypt. Everything seemed seem to be okay. Because here's the thing. You don't reap immediately. You sow, and you reap later. And you reap more. And you can't, look, you can't sow to the flesh and then pray for crop failure. You will reap what you sow. And we see Abraham here beginning to sow some things. And they're not good things. He's not trusting in God. He's not having faith in God. He's making decisions based on his own knowledge. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. But Abraham says, No, you know, I think God might have just led me wrong. I don't know why he wants us in Canaan with this famine. But let's go down into Egypt. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. If you decide to go down into Egypt, you will regret it. You expose your kids to Egypt, you will regret it. You expose your life to Egypt, it'll come back and get you. So what's the best thing to do? Here's the best thing to do. Trust God. Stay in the will of God. Say, but there's a famine. Here's what you say. I know. Here's what Abraham should have said. I know what God called me to do. I know God told me to be in the Ur of the Chaldees. I'm sorry, the Ur of the Chaldees. Good night. To be in Canaan land, and I'm going to stay in Canaan land, and I'm not going to go anywhere till God directs me. 
And see, you and I, when a famine comes, when the trials come, when the tribulation comes, we need to just say, I know this is what God wants. I know what God wants me to do. God wants me in church Sunday morning. God wants me church Sunday night. God wants me church Wednesday night. God wants me raising my children right. God wants me to make sure I, I protect my children and discipline my children and disciple my children and bring them up in the nurture. I know what God wants me to do. I'm just going to do what God said and let God deal with the famines and let God deal with the trials and let God deal with the troubles. Abraham made a mistake when he started acting selfishly. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.